So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but the prophets, through men, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Helen. Uh, You'll find an outline for this talk on page 7, session 2, devoted to God's Word. So what was it this morning? Devoted to God's way. That's right. So devoted to God's word. Now, so let me pray and then we'll uh, look at this text and just keep your Bibles open so you can follow along as we work through it. So let me pray. Our gracious Father, uh, the words we hold in our hands now and have just read, are your words. Help the weight of that to hit us now. Help us to listen to your word and to put it into practice. Help me as I speak to be clear and faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in a little country town called Bort. Bort. There we go. Now, in this little country town, I attended a little country church. And life in this little country church was simple. Faith and Christianity, it seemed very clear-cut. Everyone seemed to be on the same page about what it meant to be a Christian. But then I moved to Melbourne And all of a sudden, faith and Christianity just didn't seem so clear-cut anymore. No one was, everyone was on different pages, it seemed. See, suddenly I was meeting Christians who believed different things from me. Some of those differences seemed small, like whether you play sport on Sunday, or whether it's okay to have blanket fort parties. (laughs) But some of those differences seemed big. For example... Some people seem to be saying that you've got to have certain spiritual gifts to know that you're a Christian. 
I'm thinking, do you? Some of those people started to say things like, you don't have to believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus, just a spiritual one. Is that true? But that stuff seems important, doesn't it? The little things I could deal with, but, but these bigger things, that was unsettling. See, who gets the final say on what to believe and how to live as a Christian? Was it the consensus of the little church that I grew up in? Was it the perspective of one of the Christians I met when I moved to Melbourne? See, Peter's readers were grappling also with the issue of whose word to trust. You see, they had been nurtured in their faith by Peter and the apostles, but now there was another word coming into the mix, contradicting what they had been taught by the apostles. And so in 2 Peter 12, 1, 12 to 21, we get told who gets the final say on what we believe about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And this is Peter's answer. The word of God is the final word. That's the word we need to remember. That's the word we need to rely on, God's word. And they're the two big points for our talk, remembering God's word, relying on God's word. So let's think about Peter's passionate call to his readers to remember God's word. We can probably take board off the screen. See, look at how serious Peter is about his readers remembering the word he preached to them. Three times he calls them to, the, to remember the gospel word just spoken about in verses 1 to 11. Look at verse 12. I will always remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it's right to refresh your memory. Verse 15, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. You see, there's a sense of urgency in Peter's words here. And it's actually because Peter knows at this point that he's going to die soon. See, look at what he writes in verses 13 to 14. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. You see, your last words are your precious words, aren't they? You don't want to waste your last words. And Peter's not going to waste his last words. You see, Peter's not interested in talking about who gets what in his will. He's not interested in talking succession plans. Peter uses his last words for one purpose, to call his readers to remember the gospel word he had always preached to them. Now, it's interesting that Peter still thinks it's worth reminding his readers of the gospel word even though, even though that they're well established in that truth. Notice that in verse 12. These people aren't sort of flaky. They're established in the truth of the gospel. 
So if they know it so well, why does he feel it's necessary to remind them three times not to forget it? I mean, isn't it like telling the number one Collingwood fan, Joffa, that he needs to remember that Collingwood is the best team on a day like today? I mean, they kind of get it, don't they? But just think for a moment of Peter's own testimony. Think of Peter. He was a disciple who had spent three years with Jesus. He saw Jesus' miracles. He saw him raise people from the dead, calm the storms. He heard all his teaching. Yet on the night of Jesus' death, Peter forgot just who Jesus was and what he had said about his resurrection, and he ended up shamefully denying his Lord. And just when you think that you're not going to see Peter mess up again from that point forward, we read of a second moment of forgetfulness for Peter. Paul dobs him in in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 12. See, there Paul speaks of how Peter pulled back from eating with Gentile believers when he was being watched by certain Jews around him. And see, what that action was, was nothing short of a denial of the gospel of grace. And you see, if the great apostle Peter can forget the message of the gospel or be led astray from God's word, we actually need to think, well, we could too. We could forget it and we could be led astray. You know, it's not hard to sort of see how that could happen. Maybe we just get a bee in our bonnet about something in the church, something in church that just means we want to stay away, and we just stop hearing the gospel week in, week out. Maybe it's just that we're fearful of our work colleagues or our friends thinking that we're just... uh, We're just such prudes for being Christian that we kind of just want to withdraw a bit from the gospel. Maybe we just end up getting so distracted by excess work or just an entertainment in our lives that we just kind of shift our focus to those things. Or maybe, as we're going to see in tomorrow's talk, we're deceived by false teachers into a life of sin. But you see, this doesn't have to be us if we pay attention to Peter's reminder here. So that's the first thing Peter wants to tell his readers, remember the gospel word I preach to you. Keep remembering it after I die. Now in verses 16 to 21, Peter gives the basis for why they should be remembering that gospel word. He wants them to know that that word is a reliable word. It's not made up. See, I think it's fair to say that we live in an age of scepticism when it comes to the Bible. For example, many people, I think, would put the claims about Jesus' miracles in the same category as a Loch Ness monster sighting, just kind of made up. Thomas Jefferson Now, the third US president was a classic example of this, a product of the Enlightenment. 
Some of you may have heard of the Jefferson Bible. This was Thomas Jefferson's attempt to create a reasonable faith, a reasonable version of the New Testament. And so what he did was took a razor and literally cut out of his Bible any claim to a supernatural event. So what you're left with is just a few nice sayings of Jesus. So out went the feeding of the 5,000, out went Jesus' resurrection, out went Jesus' return as judge. And you see, just like Jefferson, there were people in Peter's day also accusing him of making stuff up. Now, in Peter's day, as we talked about in the context section before, there was a particular part of the gospel that the false teachers had come to scoff at, had come to mock, had come to flat-out deny. And that was the return of Jesus as judge. In chapter 3, verse 4, which we'll look at tomorrow, we read of these people scoffing at that doctrine and saying, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter, no, they're just telling you, he's telling you fairy stories. And you can imagine the predicament that Peter's readers were in, wondering whether they should believe the word Peter and the apostles had taught them, or whether they should buy into this new teaching they were hearing. And so it's into this context that Peter makes the case that the word he preached, that the word the apostles had preached to them, is reliable. It has the backing of reliable apostles who were eyewitnesses and it's consistent with the Old Testament prophets who were also reliable messengers of God's word. So let's think first about Peter's claim of the reliability of the apostles. So first, the apostles as reliable eyewitnesses. The gospel word that was preached by Peter, he is saying can be trusted because it came from eyewitnesses, Peter and the apostles. It wasn't second-hand info, it wasn't third-hand, it wasn't fourth-hand. No, it was first-hand. Now imagine for a moment that you were one of the apostles and that you had to pick an event from Jesus' life to show that you were a credible eyewitness. What do you think it might be? Maybe... The raising of Lazarus, that's one of my favourite stories. Maybe it would be Jesus' resurrection. Maybe it would be when you're out there with him on the boat and he calmed the storm. That's a good one. Well, the event that Peter chooses to talk about here is an event known as the Transfiguration. Now, Peter chooses this event for really two reasons. Firstly, it shows, this event shows that Peter was a credible eyewitness generally to Jesus, all he said and did. But secondly, it provides proof 
of the very thing the false teachers were denying, which was Jesus' return. So what was the transfiguration? Let's think about what it was first and then how it proves that point. So what was the transfiguration? Well, some of you will remember it. It was that moment in the life of Jesus where he took Peter, John and James up to a mountainside and there the apostles witnessed Jesus transform in appearance from a regular-looking man into a glorious, powerful, shining, majestic figure. We read in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light, Matthew 17, verse 2. We also read that two famous Old Testament prophets were there with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, speaking with him. And combined with this overwhelming sight, the apostles had also heard the voice of the living God, saying of Jesus, their master, You are my son. This is my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Look at what Peter says in verses 16 to 18. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. See, it's like Peter is saying, guys, I'm not mucking around here. We witnessed this stuff. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Jesus was so glorious that I could barely look at him. But it wasn't just what I saw. It's what I heard, guys. The voice of the living God said that our master was his beloved son. See, imagine being there in that moment. I think I'd just pass out because it'd be all so overwhelming. It would have just been amazing. See, for Peter and the apostles, the transfiguration was life-changing because what they saw and what they heard in that moment was more than just an interesting sound and light show miracle. That event actually told them something about who Jesus was. You see, in one sense, that event was something of a preview that said that Jesus was God's promised king who would both rule and judge the world. So let me explain how. So first they had the glorious appearance of Jesus, right? In that moment, Jesus was showing them a pre-screening of the glory he would be returning in when he comes as judge. But you see, combined with that vision, they had heard the words from God that confirmed who Jesus was. You see, the phrase, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, actually picks up two Old Testament passages. Psalm 2 verse 7 Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
Now, both of those passages speak of God's Messiah, speak of the one who will come and rule all, who will judge all. And so in this moment, picking up those Old Testament references, God is making a statement about who Jesus is, declaring Jesus to be that Messiah. You see, Peter is telling his readers here that um, Peter is telling his readers that the word he and the apostles preached to them is reliable because they were faithful eyewitnesses to an event that speaks directly into the denials of the false teachers. You can believe us, says Peter, and you can believe us when we tell you about the second coming. But second, what the apostles taught was consistent with what the prophets had preached. You see, just like the apostles, the prophets too were reliable because they spoke the very words of God. The prophets point towards and confirm all that the apostles preached regarding Jesus, including his day of judgment, which again was being denied. Therefore, says Peter, you need to pay attention, not just to us, but to the prophets. Look at verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you'll do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is saying... Our message is consistent with their message. We preached God's salvation through his Messiah. They preached God's salvation through his Messiah. We preached God's coming day of judgment. They preached God's coming day of judgment. You need to listen to us, but you also need to listen to them. You need to think of their words as light in a completely dark place. So imagine being stuck in that Thai cave a month or two ago with those boys. Imagine the fear of being in a completely absolute dark place for days. I mean, it was terrifying to think of when I actually considered what they went through. But then that little light bubbles up from the water And the hope that must have filled their hearts in that moment. Peter's saying, that light, that hope, that's how you've got to think about the scriptures. You see, the scriptures are the light that reveals God's truth to us. Suddenly we see our sinful heart for what it is. Suddenly we see the Lord who offers salvation All of our life now is guided by God's truth as we navigate through this sinful, corrupt, dark world. Peter says the day of light will come when Christ, the morning star, returns. But until that day, we are to pay attention to the light of Scripture. We're heading for a day of complete light, but until we get there, we pay attention to the light of Scripture that God has given to his people. 
uh, one particular missionary who was convinced that the scriptures, both old and new, were light in a dark place, uh, was a man called Brother Andrew. Some of you might have heard of him. He became known as God's smuggler. And throughout the Cold Cold War years, Brother Andrew smuggled many, many Bibles into Eastern Europe, giving thousands who were under atheistic communism the opportunity to receive the light of the gospel proclaimed in the Bible. And you see, Brother Andrew's basis for doing this was the conviction of what Peter says here, that it's true, that the scriptures are light in a dark world. He famously said, don't curse the darkness, light a candle. See, they're the words of someone who gets what Peter's saying here. Words of light, because they are God's words. And this is what Peter wants his readers to understand in verses 20 to 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The words of Scripture are reliable because they are God's words. You see, when we read someone like Isaiah, we're not reading the interesting but possibly outdated insights of some guy who lived two and a half thousand years ago. We don't just write off Isaiah or any of the prophets as an interesting historical figure, but nothing more. No, he and the other writers of the, the scriptures spoke from God as the Holy Spirit directed them. God used them with their individual personalities, writing in the midst of their present-day concerns, to speak on his behalf. Speak a message that crosses time and culture and is always relevant. Peter wants his readers to say, when the scriptures are speaking to me, God is speaking to me. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And actually, that's what we see in Paul's writings too on this issue. Remember what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16? It's another one of those good 3.16s. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God-breathed. And what do we discover towards the end of 2 Peter here? You see, what we discover is that the apostles considered their words too to be scripture. You see, look at what Peter writes at the end of chapter 3, speaking of the apostle Paul from verse 15. This is what he says, but take notice of what he says at the end. He says of Paul, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, 
and listen to this, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter places the writings of the apostles in the same category of scripture as the Old Testament. So we can say all scripture, words of the prophets, words of the apostles, they're all divinely inspired words of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I reckon I so easily forget the weight of that. That here, I have God's words in my hands. I remember once um, at my old job in the city, I bumped into Brendan Fafola down in the lobby. He's a bit of a washed-out Carlton footy star. And so I ran back upstairs and got like a notepad and ran back down. I said, Bev, can I have have your autograph? And he wrote me a little note and stuff on the pad. It was quite nice. Um, Then I took it home, and then I put it on the fridge. I remember just kind of looking at it that night thinking, I got Feb's words written up there. How cool is that? But when you kind of consider that to what Peter has just told us here, I mean, I'm getting excited about some washed-up footy star's words on my fridge when I've got God's words always probably within arm's reach on my phone. I mean, we need to feel the weight of the fact we have the living God's words in our grasp here. How awesome is that? Peter is telling us here to remember God's word and to rely on God's word. We have reliable apostles in the New Testament. We've got reliable prophets in the Old Testament. Remember what they say. Rely on what they say. This word has the final word on what we should believe and how we should live. So if the Bible is completely trustworthy, if it's the completely trustworthy word of God, what difference should that make for us? I'm going to suggest two things. Firstly, we should be living by its authority and making it our priority. Living by its authority, making it our priority. Firstly, living by its authority. But the first thing we need to understand is that actually all of the Bible is authoritative. Remember, that's what Peter's telling us. Prophets, Old Testament. Apostles, New Testament. And so we don't ignore any parts of the Bible. Some of you may have heard of the so-called red-letter Christians who focus primarily on the words of Jesus, which are sometimes written in red. Does anyone have that in their Bibles? Andrew Wirt, you are a false... No, just joking. Um, The slogan of the red-letter Christians is this, living out what Jesus taught. They focus just on the words of Jesus. But you see, focusing only on one part of the Bible implicitly downplays the rest of the Bible 
You see, the rest of the Bible ends up being considered, I guess in some sense, less divinely inspired. But that is not what Peter has taught in this passage, is it? Now, that might not be a temptation so much for us, but we might find ourselves not valuing the Old Testament, for example. We might be tempted to ignore those more politically incorrect parts of Paul's letters. But what Peter is telling us here is that Christians are to pay attention and to live under the authority of all of Scripture. And you see, we live by this word and we die by this word. We live by this word. I remember the first time I was ever insulted for being a Christian. I remember it like yesterday, grade six, in class, a bunch of kids somehow figured out that me and my family went to church. And if I went to church, I was probably someone who read the Bible. And so what was their, what was their line on me? Bible boy. That's what I got called that day. Bible boy, Bible boy. Now, I didn't think this at the time, trust me. But I reckon that is an insult that you can wear with pride. Because that's what we want to be, isn't it? We want to be Bible boys. We want to be Bible girls. We want to be Bible men and Bible women. People who don't just know it, but live by the Bible's authority. Who love God and live by his word in every aspect of their life. Every aspect. And so if we feel the pressure to slander someone at work, for example, we think, no, no, God's word has told me I've got to love my neighbor. I'm going to remember that word. I'm going to rely on that word. Or if we're attempted uh, to, to be more physical in our dating relationship, we want to be thinking, no, no, God's word calls me to purity. I'm going to remember that word. I'm going to rely on that word. Or if someone uh, tries to persuade us that Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, it was more of a metaphorical, spiritual thing. We want to be thinking, no, no, God's word says that he did. I'm remembering, I'm relying. We want to live by the authority of the Bible, but we also want to die by the authority of the Bible. You see, we want to be prepared, like Peter, to depart from this world Trusting in God's promises of eternal life found in this Bible. See, that point hit home to me in a powerful way during my summer placement in Warrnambool last year, or last January. See, in the first week in Warrnambool, when I was there, Shady, who you all know, Shady and I went to visit a man who was sick and in hospital. Now, this guy wasn't a Christian, but he wanted to have a visit from a local Prezi minister, and Shady was the only one on deck. I was a student, so we both went together. 
And when we went to see him, he was relatively okay at the time. He was in bed. Clearly, there were some problems. But we thought, you know, it would still be good to read God's word with him, to encourage him, to think about hope uh, beyond this life. And so uh, I chose to read to him John chapter 11, my favorite passage, Jesus raises Lazarus. And following that, he not along and said, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, good. We said goodbye, and I told him that I'd pop in again before I actually went back to Melbourne. But it wasn't until like a couple of weeks later, and I was just about to leave in the next day or two, uh, that I thought I'd pop back in to see this guy. And so I took Toby McIntosh, another um, minister, with me to introduce this guy to Toby to continue on the, the relationship. But you see, when we entered the room, it was clear that this man was now on death's door. He looked like he had dropped about 20 kilos, and they'd put his mattress on the ground to stop him from rolling out his bed in agony. And Toby, he took one look at this bloke and said, just forget the introduction. This bloke is dying and you need to give him the gospel. Now, at first I was thinking, man, what do I say? I've never been in this moment before. I've never had a bloke dying in front of me. What am I going to say? How am I going to phrase it all? And then I just thought, well... Two weeks ago, I read to him John chapter 11. And so I'm going to tap back into that promise. So I got back on the floor with him. And after saying a few words to him, I said, Jack, wasn't his actual name, do you remember the story of Lazarus from a couple of weeks ago? Do you remember what Jesus said? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jack, this promise is for you. Jesus offers you life in the face of death. He died on the cross to take your sin away and was raised again to life. Do you believe Jesus when he says this promise is for you? Yes, he said, I believe. You see, that moment brought home to me more than five years of Bible college, the power of God's word to meet our greatest need in the message of Christ crucified and risen. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that message, don't wait for a moment like his, because you may not get it. Come to Jesus today and put your belief in him. We live by this word, and we die by this word. And if we live by this word and die by this word, 
Well, that's the word we need to prioritise, isn't it? This is why we make church a priority. We actually think it's worth going week by week because we want to hear the word taught. That's why we actually think growth group is actually a priority. I want to be there in the middle of the week when I'm in the thick of work. I want that moment where I'm hearing God's word, talking about it with other people. That's why I read it daily on the way to work. That's why it's always worth asking someone, would you want to just meet up and read the Bible? Maybe once a week, once a fortnight. You see, where is the Bible on your list of priorities? If this is the word that you live by and that you are dying by, is it where it should be on your list? Well, I thought I would conclude uh, by commenting on an encouraging thing I saw last Sunday. Uh, We had a church meeting at Surrey Hills uh, to discuss uh, the possibility of our assistant minister becoming the senior minister, as the senior minister had uh, resigned to take another position a few months earlier. Now, while everyone acknowledged uh, the great work that our assistant minister has been doing, there were one or two people who maybe just thought it might be more appropriate to find someone older that could really minister to the older people in the congregation. Bear in mind, this guy's about 40, so I don't know how old they're thinking here. But you see, all those sort of comments stopped when one little old lady put up her hand and simply said this, look, I don't know what all this talk about age is about. Look, the closer I get to heaven the more I just want someone to preach the word to me. And that's what he's been doing. He preaches the word. Now that's the attitude we want to have, isn't it? Devoted to God's word. Always remembering. Always relying. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, forgive us for the way we have ignored, rushed over, forgotten your word. Father, I pray that today we would be renewed with a sense of awe and wonder that you, the living God, have revealed yourself to us. May we become people who are devoted to your word, Lord, in our church, in our relationships, in our personal lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.